Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Upon Further Review, Frontline Conversations with Dean Bobo. I am Larry Bobo, Dean of Social Science at Harvard University. My guest for this discussion is Tommy Shelby, the Caldwell Titcomb Professor of African and African American Studies and of Philosophy, and he is also currently chair of the Department of African and African American Studies. We are focused on Professor Shelby's newest book, The Idea of Prison Abolition. Welcome. Glad to be here, Larry. Thanks for having me. Please, it's, it's my pleasure, and it was a real delight uh, uh, to read the book and engage uh, the issues it puts on the table. You are obviously well-known for work and scholarship right at the intersection of philosophy and black studies. And so at one level, we could say it, it makes an enormous amount of sense in these times uh, to focus on this type of question. If we think about events in Ferguson, if we think about the murder of George Floyd, if we think about the phenomena of mass incarceration, which I tend to call racialized mass incarceration, just to be explicit about it, it makes sense for a student of the African-American experience to take up these issues. But let, let me ask, and I don't, I don't mean to be challenging in a way, but just to get you to explore this idea, why bring a distinctly philosophical lens to the question of prisons? In particular, why literally frame it as engaging the idea of prison abolition, uh, something potentially regarded as a, a radical proposition in, in many quarters and perhaps all leg or common sense discourse? That'll take a while, but I'll... I'll okay, <laughs> give it a shot. <laughs> but I'll give it a shot. Um, well, you know, I mean, I, I should probably say that it's not a book that's written to necessarily respond to a political crisis or, or the moment in a way. I mean, these are, the book is based on some lectures I gave in, in, in 2018. And there was, you know, I was working on that onto the lead up to those lectures. And um, they kind of come out of some unresolved questions that I had when I was writing my last book, Dark Ghettos. You know, and there I was really trying to think about, um, you know, one of the problems of ghettoization and concentrated poverty in, in poor black communities is um, the fact that so many of those people from those communities find themselves in prison. Um, and it's a cycle of coming out of those communities into the prison and back out. It shapes the, the, often the culture in some of those communities, as you know, bleeds out into popular culture and the like. And um, so I, I went, in that context, I, I did talk a lot about how to respond to the problem from the standpoint of political philosophy how to think about, you know, when it's appropriate to impose punishment in circumstances of injustice. And I made some suggestions about some reforms I would, would call for there. I was aware at the time that there was uh, a kind of budding prison abolitionist movement. I certainly knew that Andrew Davis had been writing about it for many years. And, um, and I, I, I didn't really take it up in the book. I kind of knew it was there, and I kind of felt like I needed to think through it. Part of the reason I think I felt like I needed to think through it was so many people, you know, that I respect and have learned from were defending an abolitionist outlook. And, um, you know, and I'm in conversation with, with people, people broadly, uh, black progressives, blacks on the left, thinking through this set of issues. And I felt like I just, you know, as I do, I think everything I write, they all kind of comes from, what should I think about that? 
And this is one of these cases where like, well, what should I think about this? I haven't really thought it through. And what, what better way to do it was to engage with the people I already respect on many other issues to see if um, they could bring me around to their point of view. So that's kind of what led me to the topic. Yeah. And so you flag already, in a way, one of the, the key figures, if not the key figure, in the uh, argument you make and, and the positions you, you interrogate, and that's Angela Davis, who uh, a figure who looms large here in, in launching this. But it seems to me part of what you're saying is that whether or not it's made its way into any sort of mainstream consciousness or is even circulating broadly in the academy as such, uh, this is an idea that's got some momentum behind it, yes? Yeah, clearly now, I mean, I mean, you could give many examples. I mean, you know, when the New York Times is running profiles on, you know, on, on abolitionists and New Yorkers running profile on abolitionists and you see it covered in all the mainstream press, that wasn't true when I first started working on the book. You didn't really see that as much. Um, and if you might have just noticed, just yesterday, the, the Freedom Scholars Awards, which is a quarter of a million dollars given to scholar activists, um, many of them working in, in and around movements, um, at least a, six of the ten are identified abolitionists. Uh, so well, there it, you go. Yes. <laughs> so it's clearly out there. Um, you know, I generally have a view that, you know, I think of myself as, you know, broadly progressive thinker and engage with people who are on the left thinking through uh, a range of questions, um, not just about criminal justice, but social inequality more broadly. And, you know, I, I think it's important for us to think about, like, what's, what posture should we have toward the criminal justice system? And there's a range of views about what our attitude should be toward policing incarceration or the broadly the criminal justice system. And so this is like, in a way, a desire on my part to kind of be in dialogue with people about these issues. You know, as you mentioned, I mean, all of my work almost all of it, is kind of working at the intersection of philosophy and black studies. It's kind of like I think of myself as philosophizing about black life and thought. And there are currents within black studies. Um, this is one of the dominant currents, not the only one of the dominant currents in, in black studies, is, it, is to position yourself with respect to abolition. And so I, I sort of felt like in a way it's kind of part of what I'm doing is just engaging in ordinary scholarly discourse around an issue that's arising in the field. Um, even though I myself am not a scholar activist, exactly um, a lot of people writing about this are. And so that kind of pulls me into, into conversation with them. Yeah, perfectly understandable. As, as you launch into the argument, you suggest that there are two key questions that, that you're kind of wrestling with and organize the intellectual project here. One of them is, can the practice of imprisonment be justified despite the existence of severe societal injustices, or should the use of prisons effectively be ended or at least halted until we have what is a more just, equitable social order? That's kind of one animating uh, thread, I think, throughout the work. Secondly, could the practice of imprisonment ever be justified in a just social order if we really were to achieve uh, that state? Or would a fully just society somehow really completely obviate the need um, uh, for prisons or at least have arrived at a point where prisons were regarded as, as illegitimate? Um, the very idea of them might, might be in question. And maybe I can connect to getting you to, to say why those are the starting points to another distinction I'd like you to help pull out for me as someone who's not got deep expertise in the kind of methodological, theoretical terrain of philosophy. 
And that is to say, how would or how does an analytical philosopher differ in his or her approach to these questions from a continental one, uh, if that makes sense to fold into this? You're bringing me into very controversial waters here. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those um, kind of explosive... You know, all, all disciplines have these things, right, where there are conflicts between people in different kinds of schools, points of view, and, um, and sometimes they're seen as partly political in, in nature. And so this is one of these cases in philosophy where there's a sense that those of us who think of ourselves in the analytic tradition, which I do, um, you know, dominate a lot of the top universities in the English-speaking world and, um, and people who, who draw their inspiration and the canonical figures they most draw on kind of uh, from continental Europe, primarily Germany and um, France, uh, often feel embattled uh, in, this, in this context. So I, in, in many ways, I mean, I don't, I don't think of myself as a partisan in that debate. I think of myself as, as I mean, I did write a dissertation on Marx after all. I, I try to draw from um, the broadly continental tradition, um, whether that includes not just Marx, but Habermas or Fanon or others who are kind of broadly in that tradition, um, but they tend to to go at things somewhat differently. They tend to there's much more emphasis on on historical studies and social theory. Um, uh, the writing is sometimes maybe a little more uh, literary, maybe a little more in the poetic register. Whereas those of us who kind of identify more with the analytic tradition tend to be more inspired by what's happening in the sciences. Um, with formal logic, um, tend to have, uh, attend more to the, the fine-grained details of arguments um, more and, and tend to reach less for the, the metaphor, um, but to try to unpack arguments. And that's part of the point about being concrete about what the exact questions are yes. that you're wrestling with. Okay, I've got that now. Exactly, yeah. Part of it is, I mean, there's a, there's a part of the virtues you're striving for here, not, and that's not to say that that people in, in the continental tradition don't ever, don't strive for these in their own way, but to strive for a kind of precision with the question you're trying to address. And in a way, I see this as very fits with a kind of black studies, black studies orientation, right? I mean, we're, it's not a field defined by a set of agreed upon methods. It's a field that takes up a, a range of questions and reaches for the methods that are most appropriate for, for answering those questions. And, um, so, so here, just getting really clear about, like, what is it that, what's the problem here? I mean, what's the question we should be asking ourselves? And that kind of will dictate what methodological approaches are going to be most appropriate for answering it. So the questions that I'm identifying here that you just um, summarized, I think, accurately, is, um, are ones I think philosophy can speak to. Very good. And uh, to emphasize a point that you... You, you touched upon, and, and I pardon me if I'm not using the phrase that you yourself have used, you approach things in a, in a methodologically eclectic way. I mean, it's, it's not as though um, there's a, an analytical approach that requires the uh, rejection or negation of the continental uh, approach that, that, that you're perfectly willing to um, engage serious claims and arguments and ideas kind of across a spectrum of sources of, of information and lines of reasoning here. Yeah, for sure. And in a lot of ways, I mean, the the tradition that I see Angela Davis's 
coming out of um, is a, a broadly critical theory tradition that you know has its roots in certain variants of Marxism. Um, and I've been influenced by by many of those the thinkers that that she also has been influenced by, and so I, I see myself in in that sense we have a common ground um, in terms of the the inspiration for a lot of the things that we that we write, even if we might write about them somewhat differently. Absolutely. So as you're you're leading directly into where I was headed next, which is to get you to um, spell out for me and and perhaps our listeners what a kind of black critical tradition entails or what that perspective involves. And in particular, in the instance of the idea of prison abolition, you draw a lot on people who I think are thought of more as political activists than as necessarily uh, political theorists or philosophers. So George Jackson on Huey Newton and Asada Shakur and Malcolm X. But most centrally, Angela Davis, so we'll come back to her in a moment. But if one were to think about especially how you draw on a George Jackson, a Huey Newton, and a Sada Shakur, whose work takes primarily the form of sort of first-person narrative, there nonetheless is kind of a logic or an analytical framework or set of presumptions that guides what they're putting on the table, right? Or have I, I got that wrong? No, I think that's right. I mean, I mean it you know, I'm a, I think of myself as a student of the, the history of black political thought, and uh, much of the writing that happens in that tradition does not take the form of the traditional philosophical treatise, as you might imagine. <laughs> so you've got people writing slave narratives, they're writing memoirs, various pamphlets, they often write in a kind of first-person storytelling kind of way. There's a lot of emphasis on oratory, not even on writing. Um, so I think anybody that wants to take the black political tradition seriously, as I do, you know, has to be able to kind of move comfortably across genres of writing that aren't going to be the typical journal article in philosophy, for instance, or philosophical treatise on whatever the question is. So I do try, you know, in the book to take up one of the things that you see, which is an attempt to use first-person experience, particularly with the prison, being inside prison, of political prisoners who were thinking about um, not just their life inside, but also about what brought them there and the kind of world that they think that shaped them and that they're reacting to and resisting. And that often takes the form of, of, of a memoir, or autobiography, or prison letter. So I do spend some time trying to think through what's the, what kind of theoretical contributions are they making to thinking about, you know, what is it to be a political prisoner? What is it to... to um, uh, uh, be in appropriate forms of resistance to injustice as they see it. And, and, and that, so you have to be able to kind of read through writing of that, of that sort to kind of get at what they're after. Now, some of, now uh, there are academics who are necessarily, you know, people you mentioned are, are, you know, we're not academics. I mean, there's a sense in which I guess Huey Newton was ultimately did write a dissertation, and, you know, so it is a way in which he kind of is in our, in our tribe in a way. But, <laughs> but, um, but many of the, um, the people who are academics but are, but are scholar activists, some of them, I think, position themselves um, in a way we probably wouldn't. It's a little more at odds with the mainstream of the academy. They might stay somewhat more skeptical of tr the, the traditional methods of the disciplines. Um, they're 
they're more eclectic in kind of how they approach questions and maybe even transgressive of a lot of, of the norms of the mainstream academy in their work. Now, partly because they're, they're moved, they think appropriately, and in some ways I agree with them, by um, that they feel they're living in a just, an unjust society, an unjust world, a world um, that's, that's violent and requires a response. And so it, though they're scholars, they see their ultimate goal is not just engage in disinterested inquiry, you know, but to, to try to help those who are oppressed find freedom. And they do that through research and thinking through difficult issues and argument in a way that's familiar to us. But it's, it's, it's driven by kind of a, a, a passion um, to, to free the oppressed. So that's, that sometimes affects the, the form that they use when they express themselves and, and who they see themselves as engaged with, who they see as their primary audience. So this, this does present some difficulties, you know, for, for someone like me who, who doesn't typically write in that way. But I, I try to take it seriously and try to read it sympathetically and kind of see, to see what they're up to. And uh, this may feel like a little bit of an aside, but how does, um, say, the, the, the philosophical academic establishment respond to weaving that sort of source material into serious philosophical writing and scholarship? Mm -hmm. Good question. Um, I think, okay. I mean, there's a way in which the history of philosophy is, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't, you know, we don't really don't get into the academy until pretty late. I mean, so you have like, you know, you got a, a tradition, at least in the Western tradition, of even, you know, 2,500 years. And you're like, you know, you only got, you know, a couple of centuries of that is really in the academy. <laughs> so so it, in, in one ways, it's familiar to have people writing in these ways. You know, we all read Plato and the only thing we have of Plato's writings are in the form of dialogues and their characters and some of them based on real life figures and so on. And so and, you know, central figures um, wrote autobiographies, whether that's, you know, um, Augustine or um, Rousseau or others who expressed themselves in the form of autobiographical narratives. So in some ways, this is familiar terrain to, and for philosophy, even though most of us wouldn't probably dare to write a, 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 a dialogue, you know, as our scholarly contribution or an autobiography. Um, we're used to kind of wrestling with texts like that. And philosophy, of course, isn't really defined by an agreed-upon method. That's not, that's not, um, there's some gen very general things you could say about approach. But mostly what we're doing is taking up questions where there isn't a clear method to answer what it is. And you, you reach for the forms of inquiry you think that might help you get some traction on it, but they might not be the established ones. So in that sense, it's not, not so outside of what philosophers might typically do, um, at least so I say. Oh, well, very good. I'm, I'm kind of glad to hear that, and I hope that it, it gets broad and serious engagement, uh, even beyond those who would just kind of be philosophers of race or of the, the African-American experience. Let me try to next pin down a bit, if we could, what are the core 
um, presumptions or arguments of folks coming from the abolitionist point of view. And maybe one of the first things to observe as you characterize it here is that these are folks by and large who are not interested in addressing problems with how the prisons are functioning. They're not interested in even pretty substantial reform. These voices are often really absolute abolition, or at least in the particular case of Angela Davis. The idea is prisons have to go. Uh, and so what is, what is the case for having gotten to that conclusion? Well, I guess it's a, it's a complex case. I mean, I think one thing I would say is I think some of the people who would identify as prison abolitionists, even very radical pl- prison abolitionists, I think they wouldn't see themselves as entirely hostile to reform efforts. I mean, they do. They recognize that there are people inside and, and their well-being is threatened by existing prison conditions. And so they are often willing and engaged sometimes um, – um, in a quite serious and concerted way with trying to improve the lives of those inside. So there's a, and that might require um, you know, collaborating with people who they disagree with fundamentally about whether the system should really exist. But, in, but any, any, almost any abolitionist who you read or, or, or talk with sees this as a long-range kind of goal to, to do away with the prisons. And they, and they see it as um, it's not a matter of just letting everybody out and not putting anybody in. I mean, it's a matter of trying to change the conditions where, you know, reaching for incarceration to, to solve social problems isn't the thing that we do. So that's obviously a very long-term uh, project. But I, they have um, a, a wide range of objections to the practice, and I try in the book to kind of go through the ones I, that I think are the most important and um, the most compelling. So I spend a lot of time talking about um, you know, should you think that it's a very real worry that when you when the public equips the state with the power to imprison, they're they're giving state officials a, a, a quite powerful weapon that can be very easily misused. So they're 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 giving the state the power to use incarceration to sometimes um, contain and silence and sometimes kill their political enemies. And that often happens, and it's happened a lot in um, in the black freedom struggle, where the mechanisms of law enforcement are used to to sideline, assassinate, delegitimize, contain political leaders, and that's not peculiar to the United States. This happens in other places too, as we know, and it happens ongoing right now in many places. So. Um, so that's a serious worry, and I think that requires thinking through whether the dangers of giving the state that kind of power um, are offset by anything you might gain from having the practice. You might also worry about, is the practice ultimately just an inhumane one? You might worry, even if you thought that it was in some sense humane, that it kind of responds to... Uh, human wrongdoing a way that's dehumanizing in some way, treats us in ways that we ought not be treated even when we do wrong. Um, many, of course, pe- people think that it's bound up with racial subordination and that it's, it's very difficult to untangle whatever ostensible public safety benefits you might get from it is bound up with um, not just 
many black and brown people find themselves in prison, but many of us who are not in prison being stigmatized by the thought that we might be criminals. And so that's a, a, a big worry. People worry about the way in which the, the practice is embedded in, in a range of for-profit capitalist enterprises and the way in which that can exacerbate the problem um, doesn't help us solve it. And you, you, you create a set of vested interest in growing the prison system. Um, so there are a range of objections. There's not really one. There's sort of like a lot of different things that people are worried about when they, they, they raise it. And I think maybe the biggest thing is they think that there's a way in which what we're doing when we're relying on incarceration to deal with various social problems is we're um, avoiding rectifying a range of structural injustices that are called for. And we deal with the consequences of not rectifying those injustices by just, you know, locking up those who are most marginalized by the system. And so they want to draw our attention to the need to engage in that structural transformation by showing how we're relying on the prison and maybe law enforcement more broadly um, to deal with problems best dealt with by um, trying to achieve a just social order. Those issues that, that you've summarized, at least several of them, strike me, at least as I'm doing my pass through the book, and, and um, excuse me if I'm engaged in an entirely too stylized a treatment of your argument and engagement with these issues, but there were some things you identified as kind of functional critiques of um, the prison, right? And, and I think you've just listed off some of those, that it's part of a tool for ensuring economic exploitation of, of certain people's groups, populations. It could have the explicit narrower objective of racial subjugation of African-Americans or Latinx uh, peoples, indigenous peoples. And at the same time, it can also be a tool to kind of conceal other intractable social problems that are the real ills rather than what the state is sort of defining as, as crime and imprisoning people over. And then, of course, one of the points you, you started with, that it can become a tool when you've given the state this kind of power for silencing and uh, repressing kind of political resistance and, and critique of, of existing state power. So are those elements then, are those kind of the, the, the functional critiques of the prison, the reliance on prison as a way of dealing with breaking of society's rules, especially of society, what it regards as more serious rules? I think many of those objections tend to be articulated as forms of functional critique. I should probably say a little bit about what I have in mind by that. Yeah. Um, so you often um, hear and read in abolitionist uh, writings and, and, and speeches Claims of the sort, and you probably you've heard this in other domains as well, where people there's a practice that people are objecting to. The practice has some ostensible aim that is maybe good, like public safety, but uh, the claim will be um, the system, you know, and then the, the slogan might be um, the system isn't broken; it's working the way it was designed to, or the way it's supposed to. And that when they when they say that, I, I take it what they mean is something like, though the system has this ostensible aim to protect the public from criminal wrongdoing, say, um, its real aim, though hidden, latent, 
um, disavowed is really something else. And that real aim could be the things you just mentioned. It could be political repression. It could be economic exploitation. It could be racial subordination and so on. And so you'll, you'll often find in these writings, um, and again, you see this in a lot of, of, of left-wing social criticism, the critique of institutions and practices by suggesting that they have a nefarious social function that is in some ways hidden. Um, and part of the, the point of critical theory is to try to, to expose that, to, to highlight it, to show, well, you know, actually what's happening is this other thing. So I, I'm, this, this part of the book um, is, um, might be the, one of the more challenging parts, a little harder to summarize. Um, it involves a, a little bit of, a little bit of philosophy of science, like a little bit of how to think about what's, what people are doing there. And, and I'm trying to, to try to make a more general point, maybe beyond the debate between reformers and abolitionists about what radical social criticism should look like. And I sort of worry that there's an over-reliance on this form of, of, of critique. Um, and I could, we could talk more about it if you like, but that's, but that's the, the, the thrust of it. Now, some of the points you've made, I think, could be articulated without framing it in that way. Um, and there's still a question about whether they would, they would deliver abolition as a conclusion. Um, but I'm very skeptical that this form of critique can, uh, when it takes the form of, of functional critique, can deliver abolitionist conclusions, even if there's something I see. to what and they're saying. Is it, is it that then what, what kind of makes it a, the, the functional critique is that these are, in many respects, hidden agendas of the system? They, they aren't the kind of forward public discourse around why we have a prison system? Exactly. Okay, but, but they are inescapable consequences of that system. Inescapable, in yes. Like they're, insofar as you're going to have the, something about the practice is the thought. There's something about the practice, and you could say this about other things too, maybe you say something about capitalism or so on. Like, there's something about the practice, the way it's organized, given what it's really, a, what it's really about, that you can't really avoid these consequences. That's sort of the, the general thought. Let me let me pose a slightly different question then, and that's whether there are some other kind of fundamental postulates that animate some of the um, uh, prison abolitionist thought that you're engaged with here. So I thought I caught variants of three of them. One is the notion that the prison is in effect, inherently dehumanizing. It really is a, a, a form of practice that is incompatible with respect for basic human dignity, and that that's kind of an irreducible claim in, in some sense. Kind of secondly, that imprisonment is, in effect, uh, directly analogous, if you will, to slavery, and that it is, as a result, you know, illegitimate and reprehensible on its face. It's just a condition we do not subject other human beings to because it's such a violation. And uh, closely related to that is just the, the historical or genealogical observation that our contemporary practice of imprisonment, at least in the U.S., perhaps in other parts of the world, is a direct legacy or descendant of slavery as an institution. And that, that, that this is... This bulwark is a key element of the abolitionist case uh, with regard to prisons. 
Yeah, I think these are central sets of objections, and um, I could say a little bit about them. Um, so the thought, I mean, people mean different things when they say something's dehumanizing, <laughs> you know, so um, what the way I interpret the claim, it's a claim about when you, when you understand what, um, what's essential to, to being human, that there are ways of treating creatures like that, that is, that is inappropriate. So if you think, as I do, that, uh, we are rational agents. You know, we are able to to, to act for reasons. Um, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but we're we're able to act for reasons. We're able to we have a sense of justice, and that's effective, so that we can recognize when something's unjust. And though we might be tempted to to, to do it anyway, we we can refrain from from doing it. So if we think we're beings like that, as I do, um, there's a question about whether imprisonment is a, is a it disrespects us insofar as we're agents of that sort. That's the kind of attack on dignity, right? Um, and so I, I spent time trying to explain why I think it doesn't. Um, I mean, it often does. I mean, I want to be, be misunderstood. Right? I mean, that often the conditions in prisons and the way that correctional officers treat people is dehumanizing in a way. People get treated like animals, spoken to as if they were animals, like, like brutes. Um, and... Uh, mistreated in all, in all kinds of ways and that, that no one could really uh, accept as, as, as appropriate. But I take it the question here is whether the practice of imprisonment necessarily entails dehumanizing treatment. And it's there where I um, sort of depart from the abolitionists and thinking that it can be appropriate when it's a, a, a serious, harmful wrong that people are engaged in or where you're worried about such, such behavior to use incarceration to try to discourage people from engaging in that kind of behavior when they're appropriately warned, they know that they shouldn't be doing this, um, and the, the imposition of the penalty is one that, that matches the gravity of the thing you're trying to prevent, that it can be a, a respectful way of responding to human agency to impose it when people refuse to um, abide by these really basic I think inescapable moral requirements to not treat people um, in 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 ways that would cause them great harm or or great trauma. So I don't think it it it's dehumanizing, and I think when you compare it to other practices that have really that are very similar to prison, whether that be um, the use of psychiatric hospitals, um, sometimes. Um, quarantine when it's serious enough. Sometimes um, uh, people who, especially when you're dealing with adolescents who are dealing with suicide, suicidal tendencies. Lots of cases where I think we would accept that institutional confinement can be inappropriate and not an attack on human dignity. And so I, I'm inclined to think, though, while the practice as it exists, especially in the United States, is, is often dehumanizing, um, it's not inherently so. Um, the questions about slavery, I mean, there's a way in which it's obvious that, you know, abolition is like, it's the, the very slogan, right? It's like built around a, a comparison with the struggle against to end chattel slavery. And many of the heroes of abolitionists are, you know, well-known um, people in the, uh, the abolition movement to end, to end slavery in the United States and, and America's more broadly. 
So it's, I think, natural for people to um, reach for uh, something that everybody agrees is grossly unjust, like slavery, and to try to show that something that many people think is perfectly morally acceptable, to show that it's really like that, is like slavery. Um, that's a kind of form of social criticism that's just very common. I understand it. Uh, I think it's overdone. I think people have a tendency to to reach for, for slavery whenever they want to condemn something. Um, it's kind of like, and that happens even with racism, right? The same thing. Everything's racism because, like, you know, we all, all agree that racism is bad. If you can just show this is racism, then you got it, right? So I just, but I think that there are real limits here in this domain because it doesn't really seem to me, you know, there's so many things wrong with slavery. There's <laughs> no one thing. So many things wrong with slavery. But as you kind of, I try to do in the book, it's like, let me think of them the half dozen things, you know, that you could say against slavery, the most serious things. And it doesn't seem to me that those objections are inherent features of the practice of imprisonment. So I spend time thinking through those things to kind of figure, oh, is it, well, it doesn't seem like it's an inherent feature to that you buy and sell prisoners, for instance. It doesn't I mean that might happen. It has happened. Um, but it needn't be that way. Um, it doesn't seem like it implies social death. Um, Prisoners often um, have a range of constitutional rights, not all the ones that they should have, but they often do have effective constitutional rights. And indeed, in some places, they even have a right to vote, like in Vermont and Maine. Um, so as you walk through the various things you might say against um, slavery, it doesn't seem, even though many of those points do apply to some existing prisons, and I think on that point, abolitionists are right to draw attention to them. Like two, Our prisons have too many things in common with, with slavery. But I take the question is whether you could alter the practice in ways to eliminate the things that are akin to slavery and still have something that we want to call prison. And it strikes me that the, the answer to that is, is yes. And so, but, but let me push it on a more practical point. I think about some of the arguments that uh, sociologist Louis Vaucant has made about how our prison system is functioning now. Um, and that he, one of the, the terms he uses for what happens to people swept up in our mass incarceration order in a way is that they're kind of extruded from the social compact, even after prison where, you know, to the extent we can try to do things like eliminate the box, that is whether you have to check off if you, if you have a criminal record. I, I'm sure many employers nonetheless still try to pursue some check on criminal backgrounds, and it's clear that if you end up hiring a school bus driver or a teacher who's got a criminal background, you're in trouble as a, as a school district or, or something of, of that kind, that, that there's an imprint that comes from having been so marked that uh, very hard to undo. No question. It's extremely difficult to do. There's a kind of stigma that it attaches to those who've been in prison Sometimes, even if they haven't, even if they're acquitted, <laughs> it continues to be attached to them. And I wouldn't want to deny that for a second. Um, I suppose that the, I mean, that's a thing we have to think about whether, you know, I think in a place like United States where we're very resistant to reintegrating people who've been to prison into society as equals, just like this enormous resistance to allowing people to, to, um, to rejoin us as fellow as fellow members, um, 
which is, which is extremely troubling because, I mean, in a way, part of your justification for using the practice rather than, you know, maiming or banishing or torturing people and so on is because we think, like, this is a humane way to deal with our fellow citizens, right? This is like people do some things that are, do things that are wrong. They, they make mistakes. Um, sometimes things they do is, is serious enough that we have to respond in a serious way. And so we do this, but it's a way, but we, we do this because um, we're trying to protect others from their harmful wrongdoing, but in a way that respects them as moral agents, as um, people who um, have families and who have a life after, after prison. And it, I think we, could, we, we partly justify doing this because the thought is that they will rejoin us and they will rejoin us as an equal with all the, the rights to go along with that. The trouble is in, in this country and some others, um, the public is broadly unwilling to do that, unwilling to uh, give people access to, you know, the basic benefits of a welfare system, to access education grants, to um, to be un, 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 uh, unencumbered in looking for jobs, to find public housing if they need that. And so we have all these restrictions that make it extremely difficult to rejoin, including sometimes not allowing people to even regain the, the right to vote, even though that seems to be changing in a lot of places now. Um, and all these are ways of kind of keeping them in this kind of position as, as a kind of permanent outsider. So I wouldn't deny that that's, that's real. I mean, but I think the question is, is whether, um, with respect to the debate between re reformers and abolitionists, is, is whether these are correctable things or, the, you know, or is it something about having the practice that it's just an unavoidable feature of it, that people will find themselves in this kind of permanent outsider outcast position. Let me ask another set of questions, some of which you've, you've already begun to engage, which is the matter of what are then the legitimate uses or rationale for prisons. It seems to me you engage with several possibilities there. One is that prisons may, and the prospect of imprisonment, or actually the experience thereof, may produce a socially useful or valuable deterrent to engaging in aberrant and harmful behavior. Another possibility is uh, a sort of incapacitation effect where, let's say, people who might um, not be as good a, a self-control agent, let's say, who don't take the message that, that we don't really approve of, say, assaulting other people or driving rec recklessly or driving while uh, profoundly intoxicated and so on and doing things that are injurious to others, but the more time they're kind of out of the population and, in effect, quarantined in some manner, uh, the safer we all are and, and, you know, the greater enjoyment of life we all uh, can take part in. And then, of course, there's the prospect of um, some emphasis on rehabilitation, where we're trying to bring a person to a whole different mode of, of uh, behavior and, and engaging with uh, society. And I guess part of my question here is, why isn't 
punishment uh, or retribution among the potentially legitimate uses of, of the threat of imprisonment and incarceration. Oh, great. Um, well, I mean, in philosophy of law and theories of punishment, retribution is discussed, you know, a great deal. It has been discussed for many, many years, and there, there are certainly philosophers even now who would defend some version of it. Um, I myself have never really been that attracted to the to the view, and um, though I don't in the book mount a, a critique of it, uh, since I, I take it as kind of common ground between me and, and many abolitionists to kind of reject retribution as a, a justification for punishment, um, I could say a couple words about like what it what it is and like what it is that we're we're kind of well. Part part of the reason I ask about this is in some some of my own research, and I've done focus groups with both groups of of white Americans, black Americans. And we would pose a small scenario to them in which, say, a 14-year-old has um, committed a homicide. And we ask them then, should this teenager uh, be at risk of the death penalty? And I'm astonished to say that and a remarkably high fraction of the people in a variety of focus groups, both black and white, say absolutely yes. And uh, when we've talked about a variety of little scenarios in these focus groups, and in one case, um, uh, a gentleman in the focus group leaned back and he said, do you all realize what we've just done? We have said that a 14-year-old, uh, you know, obviously not a fully developed person, um, should be executed by the state if they have committed a crime. And it was like there was no compunction about saying there should be an equivalence to what happens, that the character of lay moral reasoning was such that it was easy to do that. And uh, there was often dissent of, from one or two voices in our black focus groups, but in some ways there was even more animation <laughs> do the crime, do the time, right? And there really should be something that felt pretty close to, a, to an eye for an eye. And so I don't, I don't know how you engage that, that problem of ordinary moral reasoning uh, that, that's kind of out there in the world uh, if one doesn't want to say, yeah, sometimes punishment and retribution are really what this is about. Yeah, that's great. Um, I guess I'm not surprised by the... The findings, <laughs> um, um, you know. I mean, I take it that that we have human beings, um, those of us um, socialized by Western traditions and so on. Um, it's not surprising that this would be a sentiment widely widely embraced. I don't. I don't think. I mean, one could sp speculate a bit about why that's so. Some of it, it probably you could you could tell a kind of social biological story about it. It makes perfect sense for communities that are very vulnerable to being raided and exploited by out, by others for those societies or for them to be able to survive. People are probably going to have to be a widespread disposition within it to retaliate when attacked. And that makes perfect sense. I, I, I can totally see why we would have that. We have lots of tendencies, dispositions that it, it would make sense for them to emerge in us. And um, and we have religious traditions that kind of reinforce those and so on, right? So I, I totally get that. Um, but I think we have to, even with all that said, ref reflect on whether we want to em embrace those uh, 
dispositions and tendencies. So it's it's can be true that I mean even even now if there's certain kinds of things of people were to say them to me or acting I mean I probably um, become aggressive in in response to it. Um, but I think it's important for us to reflect on whether that's the right way to respond to, to things. And I think it's hard to explain. I guess that's the reason why I find myself kind of rejecting retributivism. I simply can't understand the thought that because this person did something wrong, that they deserve to suffer. I just, I, if someone could help me un- put those two things together, uh-huh. yes, I right. might be able to get on board, but I just don't see how that, how you can explain, how you could justify the thought Okay, this person did wrong, and so not be, they're going to be, we're going to make them suffer, not because that's going to provide us any public safety, it's not going to make them any better, it's just like, that's how we're going to respond to it. I just don't, I, I have a hard time um, making sense of it, to be to be, to be honest. And so it, it, and it leads me to think that— And in that you mean in terms of sort of ethical or yes. moral reasoning yeah. sense. I can right? understand it in an explanatory sense. I can understand, like, why— dispositions of that sort would emerge and be preserved over time. I don't have any any difficulty understanding it's um, and why, even though I think it probably best understood as a a, a practice meant to deter people because you let them, you put people on notice that if they, if they, if they attack, they're not going to get away with, I mean, they're going to be a response that being disposed to do that can have a deterrent effect. But, I think what happens is one internalizes it as a kind of um, a moral sentiment that uh, they de- they deserve it to suffer. They did me wrong. They deserve to suffer, and so on. So I would defend um, incarceration as a penalty for serious wrongdoing on the grounds that it helps to prevent um, such wrongdoing. Can't stamp it out. Probably nothing can, but it can. It can bring it down to maybe tolerable levels, uh, joined with other practices, and and so I'm I'm led to think you know rather than kind of fall back on uh, the idea that retaliation is justified or something like that in itself, to think that uh, sometimes by responding to criminal wrongdoing with imposition of a penalty can discourage that kind of activity. We know this even outside of the context of imprisonment, right there. A range of penalties that we impose, and we do that not because we're necessarily trying to make the person suffer, because we think that in itself is good, but because we think it might discourage people from engaging in that kind of behavior, whether that's reckless driving or other kinds of things. We think so. So in this case, that's that's one reason that we might engage. And I think you could justify it to people is that well, look, we, these are the wrongs are serious enough. People are going to be harmed, sometimes killed. It's important for us to try to prevent that if we can. And so by setting up a practice of imposing penalty when people do those things, you put people on notice that, th- that this would happen and that could potentially discourage them from doing it. But, of course, we know that sometimes people won't be discouraged. <laughs> you know, there are people who, despite the fact that this threat looms over us all, um, as part of what it is to live under a criminal justice system, is that we're all subject to this. Many of us will find, well, you know, may not be tempted to do these things anyway, but, but even if we are tempted, we might be discouraged by the presence of it. But some people, they won't be discouraged, and they might engage in these things anyway. And sometimes you do have to, as you mentioned, you have to, sometimes you have to incapacitate people if the, the harms they're going to engage in are serious enough. And you have real reason to believe that people are in kind of an imminent danger. Um, 
So I think that's that can be that can be appropriate and also part of why we how we justify the practice. And I think sometimes, um, I think you know, in many cases, the kind of rehabilitation efforts we might engage in might be best engaged in with people who are are not. Um, not locked up. There are lots of rehabilitation you might do with people kind of um, uh, in a way you might say in a kind of outpatient way if you like, right? So, um, but it might be if you're dealing with someone who is, um, has, you know, some some serious problems they control in their anger or they're really, they're sort of really disposed to act aggressively toward people in ways that they find difficult to resist, you might have to hold them while you try to, try to rehabilitate them. Um, and so I think that though, that three-pronged approach to crime prevention of general deterrence, uh, incapacitation, and rehabilitation is kind of how you would justify it. I'm a little bit— um, And so I, what part of what I wonder then is how does—what is the abolitionist response? So, for example, you discuss—I think it's in this section of the book—cases of—or of, the practice of restorative justice of some kind— or uh, really powerful illustrations of cases of forgiveness um, and, and what it takes to accomplish that, um, if, if you will. So I, I, it, it makes me wonder, someone who really was a committed abolitionist, say, what would Angela Davis say to the claim you've just made if she were going to stick with the, the abolitionist line? A, a range of things. I mean, um, I think... Abolitionists generally just they don't think that prisons deter. So 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 there's a factual question here. Just no, but then how do they deal with bad behavior, as it were, or or are they really assuming the accomplishment of some utopian state where uh, there there kind of are no violations of of respectful, decent treatment of everyone else by everyone else? <laughs> well, I think they probably think that um, if you could transform society and, and, and the world in a way to make it more egalitarian and and, um, and you rather than punished you treat those who have um, you know substance use disorders or who um, have mental illnesses of a various sorts of you if you you were to treat those rather than punish people who have those problems um, you're going to probably bring down the problem of crime dramatically so, so there's a question of what do you do with what, what remains, right? So you, you might think that, I mean, this, again, it's hard to know, but maybe you could bring it down to a point that it's actually lower than it is now, right? Um, I mean, there's a lot of people who are committing crimes that never get caught, they never get punished and so on. So it's not as if it's unheard of, you know, that there are people out there who are a danger to others who don't, who don't we never really deal with. Um, but if you brought it down to a low enough level, you might think that that's a level that we um, should tolerate without resorting to incarceration to respond to. And what you do for those the people who do engage in harmful wrongdoing, you, 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 you have a more victim-centered approach to the problem. You, you try to um, uh, attend to the needs of those who've been harmed by others, um, both their their ordinary um, physical necessities, but also um, their mental health needs. You try to create a situation where they can move beyond the trauma that was in, involved, which usually involves some kind of effort at restorative justice, some kind of way of getting those who've wronged them to 
acknowledge what they've done, to apologize, make repair, restitution for it, to demonstrate in some kind of way that they're turning away from that kind of conduct. These are ways of bringing closure to harmful wrongdoing and allowing people to kind of move past it. So you can imagine a kind of two-pronged response, right? You can, you on the one hand, you, you, a lot of the violence and serious harm that's happening is is an, is a symptom of of other structural injustices. What remains is either some problems with people dealing with substance abuse disorders or mental illnesses that could perhaps be treated. Um, and if there's still some left, then you could respond to that with various forms of restorative justice. And this would be a better, more decent way for us to respond to these problems than, as they might say, lock people away in cages. Um, so I myself am agnostic on whether we could create those conditions. I mean, I don't know. I think it's worth aspiring to, uh, to try to create those kinds of conditions. Um, so I, I find myself thinking that's a worthy ideal to, to strive for. I don't know that we're in a position right now that we can say confidently that if we were to create those conditions, we wouldn't need prisons. Um, but maybe we wouldn't. Right. So that, I, I think there's something to that position. All right. Two probably unfair questions. One of them is, would you say that there is a sort of political project or policy agenda in Professor Tommy Shelby's view of the, the challenge <laughs> of uh, incarceration? And secondly, and this is the most unfair of the questions, <laughs> What about defund the police? Is that a politically viable project? That last one. <laughs> I said it wasn't a fair question. I'll see what I can think. What I can say. I mean, I guess the the policy agenda is was already kind of articulated in my previous books or dark ghettos, where I was really trying to think about. You know, for me, I feel like you know, you got. The ghettos, barrios, reservations, and so on. And a lot of the people in prison, they come from these places, you know, filled with people from the, the prisons, filled with people from these places. And so I, it seems to me that responding to the structural injustices that create that kind of dis, that kind of concentrated disadvantage is the is the real agenda. And that there's no one thing. There's just a range of things that have to be responded to. Whether that's about how you handle employment, what kind of um, Subsidies are appropriate to people who um, are a deeper disadvantage, tax code, you know, this range of issues right there. So these are the broadly Gautarian, um policy agenda. Um, I think in the criminal justice realm, you know, I think trying to use uh, incarceration to deal with the social problems that are created by deep systemic injustice is a really morally perilous kind of thing to be engaged in. I think sometimes you have to if the thing is serious enough. So I myself do favor pretty um, pretty radical decarceration, that is to to make efforts to really limit the number of people who we, we, we put in prison, even now, right, under these kind of conditions where um, that are far, far from just. So that might be, you know, how do you in, handle the people who are merely accused of crimes or haven't been convicted of crimes, you know, the who are often spending a long time in jail, a really long time. Yes, 
I don't see how you can justify it. I just, I just think I don't. The other sides don't really, don't really rely on it in the way we do on cash bail the way that we do. These are people who are accused of the kind they haven't even been shown to have committed a crime, and yet we will hold them for months, sometimes years, before we resolve the matter. And I don't think you could possibly justify that. So I, it does seem to me, you know, people who are engaged in bail reform and trying to um, have it be the case that really only the people who you have strong evidence are in imminent danger to others, do you hold them pretrial? That all would get a lot of people out of prison. It also allow a lot of those people to keep their jobs, if they have them. Um, because, you know, once you go in, it's like, you know, it's all over. And as you, and as you know, like, that the the stain of that just follows you and it's like how are you gonna how are you gonna feed yourself um but it's also there's just over criminalization i mean there's just like a bunch of things that don't need to be felonies i mean and um we have we are in a position technologically now and some abolitionists would hate this thought but um we have ways of kind of containing people through electronic monitoring that doesn't that will allow them to keep their jobs and to stay in their stay in their homes. Um, so if you had so some of the crimes that people are engaged in there are not ones that we have to f- you know fear f- you know um, grave danger to others. I don't see that we need to resort to imprisonment to discourage that kind of conduct. We have other ways of of, of, of discouraging that. So I think that you know, I, I really would like. You know, that the kind of policy agenda that I would favor is one that really narrowed the range of things that um, would bring about an imposition of a prison sentence and to really the things that cause really great harm, um, the kind of harm you can't repair, um, that cause the kind of lasting trauma that people you know can't really get over readily. Those are the kinds of things I think where you want to resort to incarceration. So I'm, I do really favor pretty pretty radical decarceration. I think in, across a range of different domains. So at least within that, you know, and, and lots of organizations are doing that kind of work, right? And um, that I think is really important. And there's lots of great reporting I think being done on it too, the Marshall Project and others, to kind of bring to light the the efforts that are being made in these domains. I guess on, on defund, I mean, sometimes the, slug, the slogan, I mean, I'm, I'm always hesitant to talk about the police. <laughs> you know? um, well, because I'm not, not like a, 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 well, I've studied policing to some extent. I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert on policing. Um, I understand the thought behind defund. I take it that the idea is um, they think the institution, the practice is pretty corrupt, in, at least in the United States, and that the police don't really provide much in the way of public safety, and that um, the money that we spend on them will be better spent elsewhere. That's some of the things we've already talked about, in fact. Um, so this this is complex because I, you know, um, you tell tell me better than, 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 than I could tell you about kind of where the empirical literature is on this. It does It does seem to me, and I've relied on many of our colleagues to try to get clear about this, it does seem that um, effective policing can uh, help to reduce serious violence. That, that research seems pretty strong. I've looked at a lot of, um, a, a lot of it, a lot of reviews of it. 
talk to Rob Sampson and others and um, to kind of figure out like what should I be reading and it seems like there's a lot of it, this, the studies have been done across a range of countries it's not just the ones that are in the United States and it seems like it can help to discourage uh, proactive place-based policing based in real data not just racial stereotypes can actually help to to bring down these kinds of so I myself um, don't why, why I think the police are kind of a menace to many people of, of, of color um, I'm not inclined to, um, you know, dismiss the practice altogether. I think it has a role to play. And I think, in fact, I, you know, I don't think that imprisonment can have the, the deterrent effect that, I, that I'm suggesting that it has in the absence of effective policing. Um, so I, I myself am not inclined toward, uh, if defund means abolish, abolish the police, I'm not, I don't, I don't favor it. So let me ask one one final question then, and, and thank you for this very rich discussion so far. And that is, what do you hope people do with the idea of prison abolition? I mean, what what role do you want this 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 book to play, and what what effect would you hope to see it have? Yeah. Um, well, I think with with philosophy, my in general, like I say, my my approach to these questions is always. You know, what should I think about? I mean, the philosophy is, is, is done in the first person. You know, it's not, I don't write these things where I think, I've got it all figured out. I, all I got to do now is figure out how to persuade everybody else to do what I already want. It's more so the, the, the project of writing a book like this, the project of thinking through a question that I don't at least initially know what the answer is. And I, what you try to do is you do it in a way where you might help others who are also thinking about the question. So I think it's a question for those people who um, they've heard of abolition, they, 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 they might be intrigued by the idea, might be tempted by the idea, but they don't know exactly what to think. And I'm hoping that, that reading my book might help them sort through the questions. They might land in a different place than where I, where I land. But the hope is that by trying to, to think through the issues in a kind of step-by-step way and um, in a forthright way, it can help people decide whether they, this is a cause they should, they should join um, and participate in or whether they should, they should do something else. Uh, I guess as a secondary hope, the, the hope is that for those who are already, you know, pretty committed abolitionists, that they will take my argument seriously. Um, I mean, even if I'm wrong. I think some of the arguments that they present for their view are have, I think, some pretty deep flaws, and that it, they should think about whether they want to rest their position on arguments of that sort. Um, and I, you know, I also hope that they, at least some who are some sometimes, can be quite aggressive in their critique of people who advocate reform, that they they might see that there's um, maybe much more uh, shared with those who advocate reform, at least those of us who wouldn't limit ourselves to criminal justice reform, but also think the society itself, especially U.S. society, needs to be, needs to be transformed. They would see us not as enemies um, who are you know, complicit in maintaining an unjust system, but as people who they might work with to try to improve our society and improve the lives of those who we unfortunately sometimes have to imprison. Whether it will have that effect, only time will tell. Only time will tell, but I think the odds are very good on on both hopes that that it's going to have the the effect you want. Certainly, as someone who's interested in these questions, I found it an enormously 
engaging and uh, enlightening read and forced me to be more systematic about a few ideas. And I don't doubt that many of those who might well be in the camp of committed abolitionists are going to have to engage the argument pretty seriously. So thank you, Professor Shelby, for, for joining me here on upon further review. And I can wholeheartedly recommend this book uh, and Professor Shelby's body of work to all of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah.